Hello, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Biotech CEOs. Today, we have with us Alex Coughlin, who is the President and Chief Scientific Officer at NTX. Nature's um, Toolbox. Nature's <laughs> Toolbox, excuse me. Um, Alex was born and raised in Germany, and he received his PhD in biophysics from Goethe University in Frankfurt in 2006, and was then invited to join the prestigious lab of Christopher Waller at Harvard Medical School, where he began his studies of the structural elucidation and recognition of enzymes and substrates involved in the biosynthesis of secondary metabolites. From 2009 until 2015, Alex worked at the Los Alamos National Laboratory's Bioscience Division, where he was the J. Robert Oppenheimer Fellow. As a staff scientist there, he developed methods to predict, identify, and characterize bioactive natural products into effective anti-infectious drug leads. Alex has published over 20 peer-reviewed articles in high-impact journals such as Nature and Science. He's been invited by an arm of the White House to contribute to efforts on bacterial drug resistance. In November 2015, he co-founded with Michael Humbert, Nature's Toolkit. Since 2021, the company's been headquartered in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. The company's developing and holds patents for the first continuous flow cell-free systems to accelerate drug development and manufacturing in a safer and more cost-effective way than traditional methods might allow. Alex, you could have chosen, uh, by virtue of your voluminous CV, um, almost any career or field of study. And yet you chose science and specifically the life sciences. What was it that drove your early interest in the field? <laughs> oh, what a question. Um, I think it was the lack of understanding. So it was um, thinking about this um, early 90s. Um, not much not was known, right? So um, not much was known about dynamic in proteins, not much was known about how proteins recognize their substrates and so on. So I think what really drove me in this direction uh, was the unknown. So to actually really um, start to understand a little bit more how um, nature operates. This was the time when basically the uh, human genome project really kicked off. And when Craig Venter really pushed hard to get a better understanding how the human, human genome looks like, and at the end, um, the genetic information is only one part of it. Um, how it actually translates into functional proteins, how um, they are basically create a diversity of functions that we see basically anywhere around us, including us. Um, that step was really understood, but not really completely characterized. So um, this was what really drove me. Okay. Some of your early work in the field at Los Alamos uh, dealt with TB. And as part of your success, there was a bit of frustration that caused you, I think, to um, try to overcome those frustrations at uh, Nature's Toolkit. And it kind of tells the story of your journey. Can you tell us about that sort of beginning then? Surely. Um... 
basically it started out with, with the work in Frankfurt. Um, you mentioned it. I did um, studied some proteins, how they fold, how they interact with each other. This already uh, was circling around natural product biosynthesis. And continued this work at Harvard Medical School with, between Chris Walsh and, and Gerd Wagner. Um, in Los Alamos, together with my postdoc at the time, we discovered a complete new class of small molecules. Um, basically, the secondary metabolite field uh, um, is the largest single donor of all drug leads that we have. So basically, secondary metabolites are responsible for or the source for our um, antibacterial compounds, antiviral drugs, um, immunosuppressant, antifungal drugs, and so on. So um, a lot of the small molecule drug leads come from this space. So it was highly interesting to actually gain a better understanding how well do we actually understand the space? How much is there still unknown? And this was the focus in Los Alamos um, to really start to develop tools. How can we basically predict what is out there, uh, predict what we have not discovered yet. Um, and also really actively think about what are the um, rules that we have to apply to not rediscover what we have seen before, but actually really look for something new. And um, this was the focus there. And during this work, we actually discovered a complete new class of small molecules that were highly interesting for us based on the biosynthesis of them. Um, isolated them, characterized them, actually could confirm that our structural prediction um, was correct. Um, so one went fast, but more most um, interesting was that we had at the time an idea or first feelings that we actually may be able to predict at least some of the bioactivities. In this case, could predict that maybe the compounds that we discovered have antibacterial activity. So we isolated it and show the help with the uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency or DITRA. Uh, we had the chance to actually run the compounds against um, a number of drug resistant strains at US Emirate and got some results back that were actually quite promising that the compound, yes, indeed, has antibacterial activity, even against drug resistant strains. So we reached out or were put in contact with um, the University of Cape Town, who is actually having very active research in TB and could show that the compounds absolutely have antibacterial activity against TB. Um, now we were at the point where we basically had to produce more of the material to actually being able to go into animal trials um, for initial tox studies and then for efficacy studies. And um, this was the moment I probably did the biggest mistake that I ever could have done and started to read the regulatory um, guidelines, how <laughs> a small molecule has to be produced and isolated and prepared for initial trials and then for animal trials and then for human and so on. I thought this was to a certain extent crazy. And <laughs> certainly, certainly part um, well, one consequence of this is that um, drug development is incredibly slow um, at the moment. So, which actually causes that our pipeline in new drug leads, new antiviral, new antibacterial drugs, is actually incredibly limited. Um, well, 
um, based on that and based on the limitations that existed, I thought, and this was the time I was talking to my co-founder, um, anyhow about the idea, how about we basically develop a in vitro system, an in vitro translation system at the time that is stable enough, that is predictable and defined enough to actually provide a tool that allows faster drug development, faster drug um, discovery to actually, instead of developing an organism that um, produces a, um, a set of enzymes that is responsible for producing a small molecule, actually do the entire work in vitro. And this was the start of Nature's Toolbox. Um, basically out of the frustration that, or the desire if you want so, that there are alternatives. There must be better ways to actually get a hold of those small needs, small molecule leads faster than it is possible with a culture. The other thing what um, should be kept in mind is that those, especially for antibacterial drug leads or any of um, basically you know, antibiotics, if you want so, um, transitioning in them into a heterologous host, that means in another strain that actually grows well in the lab, um, is not without challenges. And you can imagine that trying to produce an antibacterial drug in another bacterium is not necessarily um, blessed with success. So what is this? <laughs> so, and, and so we really uh, were focusing on what can be done fundamentally different. There he is. Okay, so I'm always interested in kind of the why behind the mission. And, and it, you know, of course, you shared with me and, and some of those instances, and maybe we can talk about those now. Um, but you did mention that uh, uh, the World Health Organization said that, you know, uh, millions of people probably are walking around with the TB and yet that goes untreated um, because of lack of availability as much as anything. Um, it's, it's yeah. So um, TB um, as a bacterial infection is actually one of our uh, biggest challenges um, in in human health. So um, there are estimates that roughly one third of the world population is TB positive. Right. Um, that is a number of infections that is unimaginable high. Um, the big issue with TB is that um, it's an opportunistic um, bacterium. So basically, especially in cases the immune system is weakened, it actually results in a breakout of the disease. Um, so it can be latent for a very long time. This is known. And when there are any events in the health of the patient or in the infected patient, um, it can result in an open infection. Um, that means many are not necessarily aware of that they are TB positive. This is one major challenge. The other is that um, TB actually develops resistance incredibly fast. Um, the literature is full of it with all kinds of mechanisms. One is that it's actually a so-called biofilm former. So that means the um, entry into um, the environment, into basically an infectious pocket, if you want so, is very limited. Um, on the other hand, um, 
there are examples where basically even mutations on the ribosome happen to prevent that an antibacterial drug can be effective. So that means we have a large number of infections, um, in many cases, co-infections. And on the other hand, it develops incredibly fast resistance. So it's one major threat to human health, that's for sure. Um, so that means anything, um, anything that really can address that, if it's um, with the vaccine developments that are currently happening or with um, treatments development that are happening, um, is absolutely necessary and, and should be really celebrated every single time we see successes in those. And, and I, I guess, it, you know, it's to say that it's not just limited um, to difficult to treat diseases in underdeveloped countries. Um, you mentioned in, in one of our email exchanges uh, in preparation for the podcast that uh, uh, GlaxoSmithKline has been um, uh, sort of warned by the FDA several times a few years ago uh, because of insufficient supply of some of the vaccines that they provide for shingles and and other kinds of things. Uh, uh, you know, it is one of the major challenges. Absolutely right. So um, we all basically um, lived through a pandemic, a very recent one. Yeah, it was a new modality um, with RNA, um, but um, production limitation or manufacturing limitation actually resulted in that the response or the worldwide response to the pandemic was actually rather slow. And it was a challenge to actually have everything together, have provide everything to actually go into um, mass vaccinations. And um, one thing that um, we shouldn't forget on, on this is that, for instance, an organization like AfriGen, which um, by all means should be highly celebrated for their efforts at the moment to develop a um, RNA vaccine to vaccinate Africa against, um, or the countries in Africa against um, COVID is now kicking off. They now go for their clinical trials. So which actually really stresses the point that we are far away from having the ability to address a pandemic um, globally. That um, manufacturing technology, how it is at the moment, is not entirely matched um, to the needs that we have anymore. So um, hence, we really focus here um, at Nature's Toolbox on tools to improve and to provide better technology um, on both in vitro transcription to provide RNA products, um, primarily at the moment because of the urgency, because of the new modalities, but also um, invest a lot in, in the development of in vitro translation systems to actually also provide uh, therapeutic um, proteins and um, vaccines, protein-based vaccines. In, in the case of um, GSK um, and, and their Shingrex. And this was a manufacturing problem. This was um, what we shouldn't forget. This was uh, based on the design, something absolutely remarkable. This was a glycopeptide. So it is not trivial to uh, produce. But uh, on the other hand, um, it actually has also shown the limitations that we have. 
um, with the demand of 8 billion people um, on the planet that need and deserve access um, to modern medicine, especially to preventative care, like vac what vaccines are, um, at the same time. And um, by all means, there, there's a lot of discussion about um, how could distributed manufacturing look like? Um, how do we ensure resiliency in the supply chain, resiliency in the manufacturing and so on? Um, and this is an important discussion um, because something like um, what happened now with, with the COVID vaccination is, is not, nothing that is sustainable. We cannot um, have a clear distinction between um, vaccination efforts in, in the developed world uh, versus the developing world. And, and those are challenges that need to be addressed and this sooner than later. So basically really the focus is uh, for us to provide technology that is this, this can be distributed um, where quality attributes are actually part of how you manufacture to actually have um, higher quality products and with higher quality products have less loss and at the same time with that actually have more active ingredient accessible fast because the downstream processing is significantly faster. What many forget is that especially in culture, the production of something, best example, flu vaccine, still produced in eggs, um, is, is a serious challenge. Um, it is very impressive that they can stand us up every year, but at the end, um, the challenge is massive. And the technical challenge to basically have everything on hand, have it ready, um, inoculation of, um, as far as I know, uh, tens of millions, I think close to 100 million eggs that need to be inoculated. Um, it's technically a massive undertaking. So alternatives certainly should focus on decentralizing this um, should focus on distributed manufacturing where basically the same construct um, can be produced at multiple sites to make it immediately available to the local markets. That's, yeah. It seems that we've become much better at identifying targets and biologics to attack those targets. Um, we're doing that faster and better than ever before. And that's what's sort of in the public domain, in the media, what everyone gets excited about. But there are bottlenecks, three specifically. One is delivery, delivery of that biologic to the target. And that's where a lot of safety issues arise. And the manufacturing, just producing at that scale. So, okay. yeah. Then manufacturing. And then also uh, selecting um, patients for clinical trials in a way that, that enhances the trial, the efficacy of the trial itself. Is that, uh, is that safe to say? And that really the, the, big, um, the big improvements will come when that, those bottlenecks sort of release. Yes. And I think there are, there are multiple things now coming together, right? We have seen it with, with the RNA modalities, um, which was for the first time a complete in vitro process. That means there were no living um, parts in us anymore. These were purified enzymes that were used to produce the RNA. 
and to modify it to make it accessible. Um, so I think there's what we hopefully did with it was opening a door for everybody to understand what modern production of pharmaceuticals should and could look like. Yes, to your point. So that also requires, um, and I'm not saying they don't, um, actually the opposite is the case, that there are very active discussions, um, also from regulatory side, right? So what makes um, a product that comes out of such a process a good product? Um, how to define that? Um, how is there a chance, for instance, if the process is always the same, um, to accept any product that comes out of it uh, from when, when it goes into scaling after the clinical trials. But you're absolutely right. Um, the bottleneck is the moment something looks really good in an animal model, how to actually transition this into a manufacturing process that provides material that is suitable for humans um, to um, build a trial and to then basically after um, the trial is successful to put this into the market. So these are the two major steps. And I would agree with you. One is the manufacturing, the change of the technology. That's what we see at the moment to get into humans and then a change of technology to get us into commercial space. And if we can overcome this um, with technologies like um, continuous manufacturing, which is actually one big topic, continuous flow manufacturing, which actually makes the process independent from batches and so on. So that there's a higher consistency, a better monitoring of the product this is made. Um, there's a lot um, that will help to overcome this. And at least now we have this discussion and this is an absolutely crucial discussion to have. Because at the end, um, COVID has shown it, I can just really stress the point is the disparity in making those modern vaccines available to between the Western world and the rest of the world um, is nothing um, that is acceptable at all. So we really have to, from many perspectives, how do we design trials? Um, what are the criteria? Um, what kind of processes do we agree on to manufacture or produce compound, produce drug substance? Um, it's a discussion we need to have now, and the discussion is happening now. That's for sure. Which is exciting, actually. Out of mm -hmm. our perspective, very exciting. Is my thought process correct when I think that um, the impending uh, negotiation of drug pricing for Medicare might cause industry to be um, more aggressive about finding and implementing uh, faster ways of, of development and, and uh, uh, manufacturing of various biologics to extend the patent window. There's an economic reason to do it in addition to just the humanitarian absolutely of, of helping more people faster. Yes, absolutely. Um, imagine you have a single technology that produces material for early development. It's the same technology um, that can deliver material for animal trials, for human trials, and for commercial space. And all the challenges around 
So basically, the scalability of a technology um, plays a much larger role, I think, than it did in the past, where basically just going to a larger fermenter is not necessarily mean that you see the consistency in the product that you get out um, that you would expect. So by basically going to continuous flow, going to continuous manufacturing processes, you have the ability to scale differently. That means you can address um, different needs out of one set of technology. With that, shortening the timeline to basically being able from the first time after the design of a drug substance to make it immediately available um, into the commercial space, take all the risk, the, the production risk out of the process, um, reduces the timeline, I think, at least um, by a couple of years for a standard wow. um, development process, which actually means that um, this is time saved. Um, this is extra time for patent lifetime in the market. And I would absolutely agree with you. This should fundamentally change how um, pricing can happen because the, the, the timeline is longer um, um, of patent protection in the market. This is one. The other is with having a defined process, um, fully in vitro defined process that delivers something. All of a sudden, um, the outcome, so basically the quality and the quantity of the drug substance that is made, uh, becomes predictable. So all of a sudden, it, there's a much better understanding there um, how much will it cost us to make at scale before we even go into scale? And I think this um, reduces the risk significantly. Um, it also, in our case, this is what we really push for, is with getting into um, providing a higher quality of material, reduce the downstream processing. Downstream processing at scale is not necessarily a reliable um, procedure. It's not a reproducible procedure. Um, downstream processing, that means purification, isolation, and, and polishing on a large scale can look very different than um, on the lab bench, which actually means um, reducing this effort um, actually allows also, in the best case, shorter manufacturing cycles, which actually means product is made available faster, is um, has a higher reliability with being accessible in the market, and so on, which hopefully also means um, beside the longer patent lifetime is that, for instance, the manufacturing cycle for something as fundamental as the flu vaccine can be shortened significantly, which actually means the design of a flu vaccine and the production of it can be significantly closer to a flow season than what it currently is, which actually fundamentally will improve the quality of the flu vaccine simply because the time window that is at the moment necessary to predict what the predominant flu strain is is incredibly long right now so shortening that um, will just result in a better product and um yes so all in and so i think there, there are many factors that actually play into it and that at the end of the day there are also economic reasons and why how we produce um, should be really rethought, should be really reconsidered, and um, technologies need to be adapted that actually, by all means, go far away from biological systems as much as we can, right? So, so we all know, no biological system is always the same, always behaves the same, and a lot of the manufacturing processes and cell lines 
um, relies on it, <laughs> that the biological system is always the same and always behaves the same. How, how old are the current methods of manufacturing, <laughs> roughly? I mean, my sense of it is that it's really old. Really old, yes. So um, um, pill pressing technology is, is now running into 100 years old. Um, cell cultivation, this is technology from the 90s and before. So um, we basically look here at technology where nowhere else in, um, in, in our environment, in our life, we would accept it. You would not accept um, a car as new, this is 40 years old. <laughs> um, you would not accept a stove um, that is running on technology, this is 40 years old. But um, here, where we can actually make a fundamental difference, um, for access and predictability of life-saving drugs, we still rely on technology. This is incredibly old. Is it true? Would it be true to say that almost all of the um, scientific effort and and academic knowledge in the past 40, 50 years or more has been it's all been spent on identifying targets and, and therapeutics, not on implementation, if you will. Right? It's kind of been the redheaded stepchild of the of the industry. Uh, no, there, there, there are there are efforts um, and that there, there are plenty um, of activities in the space. And for instance, um, there's this um, there was an effort in MIT to basically for chemical synthesis to um, improve this to basically control better how how compounds are produced and so on. So so there 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 are activities, broad activities. Also, when it comes to RNA manufacturing, there are activities. Um, best example here is um, also also in vitro translation. There are some, but um, what um, the last three years really accomplished is to stress the point how essential it is, um, how essential it is to be able to produce and to produce reliable. So there's all of a sudden, I think, much more interest and much more emphasis put into this. And the need has been clearly demonstrated for it. It was there, but now it actually really becomes a topic and in this uh, discussed much more open than 10 years ago. Um, all I can tell you out of our experience when we started the company, um, the first conversations we had with pharmaceutical companies or um, with people that came out of a regulatory environment, the, the, the response was, it is impossible that you ever get us into the market because nobody wants to adopt new technology. So this was, this was <laughs> our starting point. And... Um, now, basically, the perception of it has changed fundamentally. And um, with new technologies, like with, with RNA as a platform, if you want to, so as a new technology, and there's a need for new manufacturing technologies. And all of a sudden, there's much more openness to actually have this discussion um, than even seven years ago. So you mentioned RNA manufacturing, and, and, and that's one of your... Uh, 
three, I'm going to say, platforms. Why don't you tell us about those and, and how they differ from uh, traditional manufacturing? Um, I touched on it carefully during our conversation. Um, we really believe that, and, and we can demonstrate this on a daily basis, um, that um, producing in a stir pot is not ideal. It just isn't, especially for fully in vitro process where um, isolated enzymes are asked to do a job and do a consistent job. Um, it is just not effective. Um, we basically built a um, the company around the idea to actually implement uh, continuous manufacturing processes. That means continuous flow, continuous resupply on substrates to basically continually feed um, the enzymes. And we have seen that this is um, has two major advantages. One, we see a better utilization of substrates um, and of enzymes. So we get a better quality material. And on the other hand, all of a sudden you see basically two dimensions of scaling. One is increase the flow. That means um, by changing the rate of material um, that is going through an exchange surface to produce more is one way of scaling. The other one is a time domain. So you can imagine that um, if we in our process produce a significant amount in 20 minutes, we quite literally, because it's all in flow, double the amount that we produce in 40 minutes. So, and, and this is all not possible in a batch because there's a saturation and, and, and that's pretty much it. And passing the saturation is basically almost meaningless. So the other thing is that um, with the scale in batches, in stir pots, you need a big, bigger pot, quite literally. You need to make more, you make a bigger pot. Um, is this efficient? No, it really isn't. Um, because this has to, this basically implies that the mixing and the distribution of everything, the homogeneity of everything in this pot is always the same. And it isn't. Um, everybody that loves cooking knows that um, in a pot, you never have a system where everything is the same. So same there. And um, this is not the case. In, in continuous flow system. It's always a defined system. It's always predictable what comes out at the end. And that helps with creating a better quality material at the end. Um, and with a better quality um, becomes more material that is made accessible. And with that, also the price comes down of what is produced. And I think these are the challenges that we have and that we need to address. How do we ensure consistent quality and to make a product always available at the same quality. And on the other end, how do we make sure that we can make a lot when we need a lot? So you mentioned, for instance, saving maybe two years in drug development. Um, do you, do, have you quantified, if you distribute the manufacturing, let's say you need, now need uh, five distributed centers as opposed to one big pot, or whatever that number might be. In, in raw cost of those five distributed centers, how do they relate to the, the one central manufacturer? <laughs> um, the footprint is much smaller. So let's start there, right? So it is incredibly hard. And, and you can imagine this, um, to keep a 
sometimes 10, sometimes 20,000 square foot facilities sterile. This is close to impossible, um, but this is necessary at the moment. The other thing is those large um, centralized manufacturing systems at the moment, um, besides keeping them sterile, um, how do you segregate products? So you basically can um, often enough make one product, then the whole facility needs to be cleaned. So it's shut down for weeks, if not months, before another product can be produced. Because sterility needs to be certified, um, cleanliness, so no carryover. This is all needs to be um, demonstrated and certified. And, and this makes sense. This is what we want. But um, going into something where you have actually have a distributed network, go even smaller, um, go so small that you basically can provide regional support um, where you have 10 systems distributed. And all of a sudden you are basically in a point at a point where you can actually within an area provide the support that is necessary. Um, you can even create them in a form so that they overlap. So you can actually create redundancy in your system, in your process, work out of significantly more smaller footprints. That means easier to manage, easier to staff, and the turnaround time is, is just a fraction of it. So that means um, turning around in our case, where basically everything that touches product is single use, but the system itself stays, um, reduces the turnaround time from one product to the next, to days instead of months. So all of a sudden, um, to respond to a pandemic or to respond to a certain need can be accomplished within days. The other thing is, if you have an entirely enclosed system, this is basically inert in that setup, and there's the possibility there to actually produce more than one product at a site. So that means uh, needs can be addressed in parallel. For instance, you can continue to provide support on a small scale for, let's say, personalized medicine. But at the same time, actually at, out of the facility also um, offer pandemic response. And, and in terms of personalized medicine, a distributed system would seem to me. It's the only way to do it. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It makes no sense to address personalized therapies in any form out of a centralized uh, manufacturing system, production system. No sense whatsoever. So that means every single time you have basically um, a number of patients of five or less. And so this is what we talk about is manufactured in a centralized system is not really efficient. Right. You're, and you're essentially producing small amounts of whatever you're producing yes. um, in a really big system. Makes no sense. I agree. Which is silly. Right. Okay. Yes. So Raza put us on the bedside quite literally and put us in the research um, hospitals that actually have sometimes um, GMP, that means good manufacturing practice setups, facilities, put uh, manufacturing production systems there, make them so safe, so reliable uh, from their function that basically anybody can operate them. Technically, anybody would be able to operate them, which actually means that the operation of the system becomes predictable. The outcome of the system becomes predictable, which means the control of what is made is provided by how is the mixes, if you want, so what you feed in, plus the quality of the template. So you can actually ensure with in-process controls um, what is produced, 
we have a good understanding what is the quality of what comes out at the end as a drug substance. And then we at a point where um, what has been discussed in the past, uh, providing drug substance as the bedside of the patient becomes possible and becomes, to, for me personally, the right approach. Because then the response time for talking about uh, personalized oncology treatments, uh, A, becomes feasible and actually can happen in a turnaround time. This is in correspondence to the need of the patients. No um, patient in need for personalized oncology drug can or has the ability or even the chance to wait four to six months. Right. Right. And so who would, who would operate this system at a hospital? How difficult would it be to do day um, to day? Um, we are far away from... from we are far away from um, enterprise, uh, Starship oh, Enterprise, but, sure. but at least um, a qualified staff, right? So people with the proper background in the manufacturing and the production of pharmaceuticals could operate this, but remote monitoring would allow that the product this is produced is, is um, resulting in the quality that is feasible. That is makes basically provides something that is accessible for the patient and can make it available. So basically, you know, of, you can almost see it as a form that um, the person that is taking care of the manufacturing process is one set of eyes to ensure the quality with all their proper education, their certification. But there's a chance for actually remote monitoring as well, that whatever is made, nothing is missed. And this is the beauty of, um, by all means, of continuous manufacturing because it actually allows in-process control. It can be immediately detected if the process itself or the product is getting out of specs. So it can be immediately stopped. It's not like that you set up a batch, then you wait a few weeks, then it's made, then you purify it, then you go through batch releases, which can take weeks, if not months, to then figure out what you produced uh, was for the trash can. <laughs> what 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 types of development partners are, are you working with and, and what kinds of problems are they trying to solve? Um, uh, we work with everybody and we work with pharmaceutical industry, very large farmer. We work with biotechs. Um, we work with um, foundations, uh, we work with agencies, uh, we work with non-for-profits. And what I'm really excited about is uh, what recently started is I brought them up and work on a way to actually work with Afrigen and, and also work with directly with research hospitals. Um, there are some initial discussions how can we actually work together to come up with a solution, with a product that actually serves their needs? And at the same time, uh, something that can actually serve for us um, as if you want so a warm facility for pandemic response, because this is another advantage of a distributed network. We have qualified staff on site that um, engage in daily support um, with production needs. 
In the case of a pandemic, as we experienced, it is the same staff that is just capable of running a larger volume of a different product to uh, make it available. Um, so that means turnaround time, time to educate people is significantly reduced. You mentioned kind of um, initially being surprised at, at the difficulty in terms of the regulations um, uh, for manufacturing. And, and we've talked about, uh, you know, sterilization and that sort of thing. Are the parameters that the FDA might use um, um, for nature's toolkit different or are they um, sort of in addition to what already exists? How are they going to um, write or implement the regulations, if you will? Mm. Um, well, yeah, we touched a little bit on it. And the um, without any doubt, regulatory agencies um, are necessary. Right at the end, we all want to make sure is that the drug we get has a consistent high quality as safe for us and clean and is functional. It's basically doing what it promises on the box. So um, what we have seen with RNA as a new modality, um, it to a certain extent, requ uh, extent requires a rethinking of how we see a drug substance and how we actually um, address how it's manufactured. And all I can say is that we actually see the willingness and the ability to have conversations, active conversations um, around that. And this is necessary. Um, this is very productive and helpful because at the end, um, out of regulatory perspective, it is, I completely understand this. So how do you characterize in RNA? Is it a biologic? even though it comes out of an entire in vitro process, out of a very defined process. So, or do you characterize it like a small molecule? If it's clean, if the integrity is given, if the modification is consistent, it is good to go, yes or no. So, um, and I'm very happy that this is a discussion, which actually suggests to me that the openness is there to figuring out what to do with it. And at the end of the day, I think, and here I'm quoting somebody else, it should be seen and should be understood as a very large, small molecule. That means if you, <laughs> if you can carry, characterize it chemically regarding its integrity, its cleanliness, its purity, and so on, you're good to go. Because this would, for instance, in the case of personalized therapeutics, help tremendously. Right, right. What, what's been your greatest success? At Nature's Toolbox, our greatest success is that we actually, and this is by all means very enjoyable, that we can have those discussions with all parties, all involved parties, with pharma, with CMOs, with uh, research hospitals, with foundations and agencies, how could distributed manufacturing look like? Biggest success, I think, not only for us at um, Nature's Toolbox, but in general for the whole field is that we have that discussion that how we produce needs to be addressed 
needs to be modified. And with that, we need to develop a new understanding how we produce. And um, I think this is by all means the, um, the most we can ask for because everything this is happening now is addressing the needs that we discussed, how to make a drug available faster, um, more consistent, and this for everybody. So, and um, by all means, this is, a, for me, the biggest success. To actually have that discussion, to get away from the understanding that one big batch serves its purpose. Now it is um, many small sites that actually support everybody, no matter where somebody lives. What's been your greatest challenge and how did you overcome it? <laughs> uh, challenges are endless, as you can imagine. Yeah. Right? Um, what day is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a long list. So I mentioned it when we started out uh, to just the perception that you come in and try to tell someone, look, um, how you produce isn't working. It, it just isn't working. It, it will fail. Um, that this was one major challenge. Um, another major challenge is um, to the development process is long, right? So, so over that, you have to find the right timing um, to engage with partners, engage with regulatory agencies and so on to actually keep this an active discussion um, to drive it forward. At the end, every input, um, even through, um, not even through, but also through the um, um, Emergent Technology Program of FDA, the input this is provided is incredibly helpful. At the end, it helps us to create a better product. Um, and I'm, I'm in a very lucky situation, or we are in a very lucky situation that with the investors that we found, and to, 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 to venture firms that invested are uh, Enzo Capital or Enzo Partners and RA Capital, that the understanding is there that what we do is no short-term investment. And that is something that is not accomplished within two or three years. It just isn't. And this is a process that um, requires the development of what we do, being comfortable with the quality that we produce, being comfortable with the operation, what we do, now going through the tech transfer to actually put us in somebody else's hand in the GMP environment and tell us, yes, we can produce the same quality and we can meet your spec sheets. Um, this takes time. And this takes effort and patience and that we can actually found uh, with our investors, a group that actually believes in what we do and supports us, even if it requires patience, is, is incredible. It's not a challenge, it's a ma major win. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's I see. So, so let's say you've experienced a challenging day, but you've overcome the challenge. How do you, what do you do to sort of free your mind? <laughs> For my mind, um, I'm in the very lucky situation that I have the chance to work with an incredibly gifted and smart team. Um, that is certainly something that 
I enjoy and that I really appreciate. So having the chance when something doesn't work out as we hoped it would, and a challenge arises, the chance is there to with the team in the company um, discuss, to have a board um, as we have it. This is incredibly strong and highly intelligent and has a good understanding of what we do and where we come from and where we want to be, having a chance to have this active discussion. And certainly with our investors, um, if there's a challenge where we do not see an immediate solution to have this additional input, it makes all the difference. So basically, um, saying it in, in a shorter sentence, I don't need to rely on myself, which is a good thing. So um, there's a large group of people that really believes in what we do and really supports what we do. To being able to communicate in this group is, is a tremendous win. Ideas to smart people are always fun, aren't they? Yes. So it goes back to the, the, the uh, platonic saying. Anyway, um, well, Alex, I, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today and explaining um, what's happening at Nature's Toolbox and uh, telling us a little bit about uh, what's happening in life sciences in New Mexico, which I wasn't uh, quite as familiar with as I am now. Um, no. Following up on some some Chamber of Commerce uh, uh, articles and that sort of thing. So there's a yeah. lot happening in New Mexico. Oh, yes. It's a cool state. And it actually, yeah. And, and um, talking about this, this is another advantage that we basically have here in the state have seen tremendous support out of the governor's office, out of um, economic development, out, out, out of the local office here in, um, in the city where in Rio Rancho, out of the mayor's office and city manager. Um, and this makes all the difference. Um, to have a chance to just have this conversation and explain um, what the need is, that um, certainly makes all the difference. Right. So I invite everybody to start a footprint in New Mexico. It's a cool state. Okay. okay. Well, it's, it's, it's been uh, fascinating talking with you because if personalized medicine is ever going to really happen, of course it's happening, but it's not happening daily. No, because I think that the biggest challenge here really is that um, producing it is limited. Mm -hmm. Producing it, we don't have the right modality yet. So we actually end up with a pricing for personalized medicine. This is prohibitive um, for broader application. If we fix this, if we can change, um, we know how to design them. Now you brought us up. We are really fast in developing. We are fast in sequencing. We have a good understanding how something can look like that works. But how to actually get us into the patient? If we fix that, um, I think we will see a fundamental change how personalized medicine is seen and what personalized medicine can accomplish. Um, and all of a sudden, especially for something as critical as any form of oncology drug or oncology um, vaccine, um, stands a chance to be successful. Um, and does not need to be applied or generalized. 
And so it actually has a chance to be the right drug for the right patient. Right. And, and then we will see a massive growth in this. And this and, is and, ha and happen often enough that it has societal benefits that go beyond the, the individual benefits for that particular patient. Absolutely. Which is really exciting. So yes. thank you very much for your time, Alex. I, I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you and, and more about uh, Nature's Toolbox. Thank you for your time and nice to meet you. Thanks for tuning in to the Life Sciences and Biotech Podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this website and podcast are purely informational and not considered investment recommendations. Tim Dory's participation in Biotech Insights is separate and apart from his role as an investment advisor representative. Nothing contained